Hi everyone, and welcome to the Prototypes Podcast. This is a podcast where innovators, product creators, and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. Our mission is to inspire more people to create great product experiences. My name is Margarida, and I'll be your host today. Today, my guest is Randy Silver. Randy is a product consultant and coach that has founded online PM communities, most recently the CPO Circles. Also, Randy is the co-host of Mind the Product podcast, named The Product Experience. He describes himself as a recovering journalist and editor who has been working as a product manager for nearly 20 years. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Randy. Welcome to, to the Productize podcast. Uh, I'm so happy to have you here and very happy that you'll be uh, this year's, uh, you'll be in the Productize conference as a speaker as well. And as um, you'll do a workshop, right? Uh, I'm, I'll be there as a speaker. I'm really excited because I came to the conference a few years ago and really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm not doing a workshop officially with the conference, but if anybody in Lisbon wants to meet a host a workshop while I'm in town, I'd love to do one. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I, and also you are a very like, uh, conference fan I've seen on your LinkedIn. So it's great to have you this time as a, as a speaker. Um, so Randy, let's start uh, maybe writing a bit uh, on your um uh on your studies uh your career so mm -hmm. i have uh, when i was uh, searching on your profile i found out that you have studied biology <laughs> which is a very interesting field of studies for a pm it's the most original one that i have <laughs> had in the podcast so uh, can you tell us a bit more like uh how did you ended up studying biology what was the, the reason yeah sure Yeah, sure. And it, it, it's even weirder than that because uh, I, I have a degree in biology with a minor in journalism, but I actually have an arts degree in biology. So I have not a science degree in science, but an arts degree in science. And uh, it all came back as I, I thought I was going to be a biomedical engineer and decided uh, that uh, some of that didn't work for me. Some of the advanced uh, physics didn't, wasn't really my thing. And then I thought I'd be a doctor and uh, found out that organic chemistry and biochemistry weren't really my thing. Um, the thing that really got me about biology, the thing that I really loved about it was when I was studying it, every cell, every organ, everything like that felt like it had a personality to me. And I could tell stories about the science and it all made sense as stories. And at a certain point, when you got too specific about it, really uh, advanced on it, it moved away from stories and into chemistry and math and, and you know, hard science rather than the, the part that I found interesting. And it just wasn't for me anymore. And I ended up with a, a, a minor in journalism and spent a lot of time on that. I was, uh, my first job out of university actually was working for Scientific American magazine. I ran their AOL site. Uh, and so a, a very long time ago. <laughs> uh, and at the same time, I was freelancing as a music journalist and, and did that for a long time and ended up actually, that was my first career was music journalism. Um, So yeah, I have a very strange background in terms of education and it got me into all this, but it did get me to the point of writing about music and being in the right place at the right time when the internet was really taking off and commercial companies were starting to invest in it. And I helped start a bunch of music websites and, and I learned an absolute ton. It was great. Wow. I, I just, I, when you said that uh, when you were studying biology, what you liked was telling stories about it, that's quite... Uh 
PM in some some sense, but I bet in, at the time you didn't know. Uh, but that uh, way of like the storytelling and uh, make the puzzle and make the story, uh, yeah, it's it's quite in interesting. Yeah, it was it was exactly that. It, it, what I've discovered is everything I did flowed really naturally to the next parts of my career. And you know, when uh, I, I host the podcast for Mind the Product as well, and we ask everyone who comes on, "How did you get into this product stuff in the first place?" And everyone has a weird story about it. <laughs> uh, but when you look back on it, you can see a lot of logic how uh, the different things you've done really help complete you as a person and round you out and you bring different skills and competencies to to the job. And I think it's really important for, uh, that people do that. But what, what I found was, uh, I was I was writing and I was a good writer, but not a great writer. But I think I was a very good editor. I liked helping other people make their stuff better. And because I was working on websites, I worked with designers and developers and other editors, as well as the writers. Mm -hmm. And I found out that working with all those people, trying to make things better than the sum of their parts and help direct them all towards something that was going to delight our customers and pull it all together. It took me a long time to realize it's a very transferable skill set. You know, mm -hmm. what I did then and what I did as a product manager and then later in product leadership and now in coaching and consulting. It all really comes back to that. How do you take a bunch of people who have their individual skills, who are all really good at stuff and have a, a real interest in doing it, and mold them all together to make something that is targeted at delighting our customers in a way that's feasible, viable, and usable? And really, that's that's all that we do. Oh, wow. Okay. And you started by doing that as an editor, so without knowing it. Exactly. I, I think it's the same job. I just get to play with different toys these days. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Understood. Um, and how did you end up in, well, how did you move to the PM career? Um, so when I decided that I didn't want to be a music journalist anymore, it was uh, right about the time streaming came in and I could see the writing on the wall that people weren't really going to be paying for music content anymore. And Also, I'd gotten into the, the industry because I didn't have access to all the great music that was out there. And well, once streaming came in, you had access to pretty much everything and you didn't need to get paid bad wages to be able to get all the music. Now I could go out and get a real job uh, and still have all the music. So um, I moved over and started doing other things in, in with websites. And I was back in New York at that time. And uh There was no discipline that I knew of about how people were doing this. We're all making up as we went along. And so the job title I had was called producer or senior producer or interactive producer, things like that. Um, and there was a little bit of discipline around things like information architecture and, and some other bits. But most of us, we were just, you know, I'd get together with a designer and a developer and try and get them on the same page and try and get us to do something. And I was doing a lot of the stuff that, I did as a product manager, just I didn't know anyone else who was doing it in a similar way. We were mm -hmm. all kind of making up as we went along, doing a lot of waterfall and knowing that it wasn't working very well and trying to figure out ways to do it better. Um, and after a while of doing that, I, I happened to meet somebody and she was in London. And so I moved back to London uh, and I found a job and they, they offered me a job as a product manager. And I said, great, what's that? And they told me about Scrum and about Lean and about Agile. And I said, oh, my God, there's other people working this way. There's there's best practices or what I've now learned, better practices, because there is no best. 
Um, but there's, you know, I can talk to other people and we can work to create better processes. And you have an entire division that's trying to, to do this in new and better ways and working together. Uh, so I signed up and I, I haven't looked back. That was, God, that was 15 years ago. So I've, you know, I've been doing the job for far longer than that, but I've been officially a product person with the title for about 15 years. Oh, okay. So you, in this part of your career as being a producer, this was before Scrum came in, like you just... I'm sure it was around. I mean, it's been around forever. People have been using it for a long time. It just wasn't popular or wasn't mm -hmm. something that had made its way into the New York scene at that point. Uh, I'm oh, sure there are other people who will tell me that they were using it and doing proper agile and product management in New York back in the early 2000s, but uh, it just wasn't something I was aware of yet. Okay, okay. And then you move to Europe and uh, ta-da! Welcome to Scrum! <laughs> Okay, that's and now Scrum is uh, everywhere. Everyone wants to be Scrum. Uh, well, you during your career, you already unravel a bit of this. You have worked in many different industries: uh, online education, media and entertainment, retail, financial services. So the question that I'll do you do do it now. It's a bit unfair because it's very difficult to choose. <laughs> but uh, like, do you have a uh, One one or two experiences that you would highlight as uh, being uh, fulcral for your development as a product leader today? Oh, God, everything has really contributed to it in different ways. I and mean, some of them were uh, really good experiences and some of them were poor experiences. But I learned a ton from each, which is the only positive thing to say about some of the bad experiences. Um Let's see, um, being at Amazon in the early days, and uh, when I joined, it was just a bookstore in Seattle. The The very week I joined was when they bought companies in uh, the UK and Germany, and then they turned them into uh, Amazon UK and Germany bookstores, and then a year later launched the music stores there. Um, seeing what it was like to go through that incredible startup unicorn type experience uh, and understanding all the good things that came with it, and then understanding that I was not uh, mature enough, maybe, uh, in, my, in my career to go from an area that was going for, you know, a massive land grab and trying to establish a beachhead in, in a field, to once we launched, trying to optimize things and going from, okay, we want 5, 10, 20% of the market when we launch, uh, that's our ambition, And then once we had launched saying, okay, well, well, now we're moving on to video and electronics and all the other categories. So in music, we're trying to refine things and we want to see a quarter of a percent improvement. It's a massive mind shift. Uh, it's really difficult if you're not, if you're the, uh, uh, in the pioneer mindset to all of a sudden go through settler and town planner mindsets. And it wasn't something that I was mature enough at that point in my career to do. And that's one of the reasons I left when I did. And Uh, I think my my bank account regrets that, but it was <laughs> it was it was a really good learning. Um, later on, uh, for a few years, I worked at HSBC and I went in as part of uh, the, in, in their global management team and was trying to work across five different business lines and uh, in 70 countries with 300,000 people. And I'd only ever worked in small companies before that. And the education I got in learning about how corporate finance works, how business works, how internal politics and bureaucracy works, 
uh, learning about the cultural differences of practicing and uh, and and how people work in different countries. Um, I was lucky enough; I had a team that uh, had somebody in Brazil, somebody in New York, people in England, in India, and in Hong Kong, and the cultural differences and the communication styles and ways of working between all of those were so interesting to learn. Uh, so yeah, just an incredible amount there to learn the difference between tactics and what you do in the short term versus really planning for the long term and putting together a really meaningful strategy and how to communicate that to C-level executives. Those things became invaluable as I moved on uh, and went to other places because I had learned how to speak their language, what they cared about, how to see things from their perspective. Um, I can't say I always got it right in my later career in, in, in the other things I did, but I was able to recognize what I had gotten wrong and apply the lessons much quicker than otherwise. Well, okay. Very, very, very interesting that you have this uh, very different uh experiences from uh, tiny small companies to very corporate and huge companies i think that's very interesting um well i would like to uh explore a bit more but we should move on to the next topic um, okay. and i would like to to talk with you about the, your book what do you do now that um, was a book that you wrote during uh covid times um and so What is this book about and uh, how can it help uh, a PM uh, succeed? Sure. So uh, back in March 2020, when lockdowns were first starting to, to come in everywhere, uh, I was talking to a bunch of my friends and we all had, had the same conversation with them over and over again. I mean, we were all blindsided by this. No one saw it coming. No one knew what to do. And they were all asking the same question, which became the title of the book. They said, what do I do now? Um, <laughs> So, and I sat down after having that conversation multiple times to write a blog post about it. And then that blog post uh, had a bunch of bullet points and then each of those became a blog post and it kept going and going and going. And I was lucky enough that uh, Jeff Gott Health and Josh Seiden, you know, two brilliant product people were running a, a publishing company at the time called Sense and Respond that had a mission uh, to, to help product people become first time authors. And as someone who had been a journalist and uh, was interested in all this, you know, writing writing wasn't the problem for me, but feeling inspired and feeling like I had a message that was worth sharing with people was the real challenge for me. And at this time, I had a real message. I knew what to say. And it was every time I'd had this conversation with people, they walked away feeling much better. They felt like they knew what to do, how to move forward. And the, the, the real secret was I just reminded them as a senior product person in your company, you are the person best placed to help your company navigate uncertainty. And whether you call it disruption or acceleration or crisis or, or whatever, it's really the same thing. We go back to basics. And it was just looking at how do we, in a moment of, of uh, crisis, go back to basics and help our companies. So start with the, the knowns and the unknowns. Look back at all your the things that you had made assumptions about in your strategy and ask, are these still true? And what is the most important thing for us to do now? So you're applying a discovery process to your own, uh, your own strategic roadmap and taking your management team and your product team along with you on that journey. 
to figure out what is most important, how are we going to do things in an iterative way, mm -hmm. what are the leading indicators and lagging indicators that we need to shoot for. You know, maybe you were a company that was going for slow and steady growth, but right now you needed a massive cash injection. Uh, instead, maybe you were an events business and you knew that there was not going to be an events business for the next year or two. What do you do? Um, and being able to have those discussions instead of just trying to continue delivering on your roadmap and doing what you had set out to do six months earlier, even two weeks earlier, was a really key thing. So it's a very mm -hmm. short book. It's very practical. And what I realized uh, over the last few years is even though it was written about a specific incident about COVID, it's really applicable to everything else. The people I talk to now about uh, dealing with uh, AI and ChatGPT and large language models and things like that, they've got the same problem that we had when, when COVID came. They've got something that was unexpected that's come out and fundamentally changed their approach to, to their business mm -hmm. or potentially will change it. But the same thing happens when there's a new uh, regulatory infrastructure that comes in place. The same thing happens if a competitor drops a new feature or a new pricing model. These things happen all the time. And the book is really just a nice, quick, easy, more of a reminder than anything else about how to, to move forward in that in, uh, when you're faced with that type of situation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, when you do need to do a pivot in your company, like uh, I would say like, it's like more like a framework on how to navigate the, how to structure your, your thought. Yeah. yeah. The reality is every company is going to be different. Um, I don't like being too uh, dogmatic about frameworks and say, this is the one right way to do it. Yeah. And I do think most people that are, have made it to a senior product position, if they're, if they're, any good at their job, they kind of already know what to do. The problem is sometimes they can't see it anymore. They're they're kind of lost in the fog. They're, they're in a bit of a panic themselves. So really what this does more than anything else is it just reminds you and it gives you the framework to, to start with, but you should make it your own. Do what works for you. Do what works for your situation. But here's some principles and some reminders of how to get started and how mm -hmm. to make sure you, you don't forget anything along the Best way. Best practices. <laughs> exactly. Okay, great. Well, um, also you you have done something very interesting recently. You have um, founded, uh, so you have in the past founded uh, product communities uh, on the internet, and you founded a very a new one very recently, that is the CPO Circles. Uh, that is a community dedicated only to CPOs, where you all get together and discuss some ideas. <laughs> Uh, so I, my my question to you would be like, where, where the idea of making a community just for CPOs came from? Um, when I talk to to people in leadership positions, I realize they they have a unique challenge, uh, and all product people, you know, whether we're product managers of of any stripe or designers or developers or researchers, anyone working in this field knows that it's a very challenging job. But most of us can talk to people in the company who are doing the job at a similar level. And we can share our hopes and our fears and what are troubling us and share advice, or we can go to our boss and ask them for some advice. The CPO is in this weird position because there are certain things that they can't talk to their peers on the management team about, things that are in their remit, in their domain, that they're supposed to be the, the expert on. 
And there are certain things that you do uh, at that level that you can't talk to your direct reports to your product team about. So it's a, this weird position where, by definition, you're a bit lonely. And it's true for CPOs, but also CTOs and CMOs and CFOs, anyone who is the most senior person. And I'm not dogmatic about the, the title CPO uh, because I've, I've actually held that title in the past, not really been given the power to do the job. But mm-hmm. I've also been in VP and director type titles where I've sat on the executive leadership team reporting to the CEO and doing my product job and leading the product team. But also part of your job there is about 20% of your time is spent on running the business entirely, making decisions about, about things that you have no specific background in. Um, so I wanted to, after creating communities for product people at all levels, I've got something called Products in the Ether. Uh, that's a free community. And then uh, I was lucky enough to participate in Marty Kagan and the Silicon Valley Product Group's uh, uh, coaches course last year. And I've now got a wonderful community with lots of other amazing product coaches. Um, I just saw uh, this, this, this opening, this area where senior people I knew weren't didn't have that that uh, safe space safe place excuse me mm-hmm. to to talk to each other and uh, I'm in a unique position a relatively unique position where it's something where I know lots of these people um, I can operate at that level and facilitate the conversation I'm really interested in the conversation and I love hosting communities so I wanted to do it uh, and I realized that the as I started that there was a really a mission for it that really tied back to everything else in my career, which is product people at all level, when I coach them, when I teach them, when I train them, when I work with them, what's holding them back from doing the job better usually isn't a technique. It's not, um, you know, do they know how to prioritize correctly? Or do they know this framework? Do they know how to make a good roadmap? Some of them, yes, especially if you're new to the job and sometimes a new technique or a new way of looking at things can be helpful. That's not really what's holding them back. What's usually holding them back is the the environment of the company, you know, mm-hmm. the communication, uh, making sure that the the uh, KPIs are really structured well, that the okay, there's OKRs in place that make sense, that people really understand the strategy, that uh, things are prioritized appropriately across different teams, and people know why decisions are made. And a lot of times, people aren't able to do that. And if I can work with CPOs to create better environments, and if I can make better CPOs and better companies and create better environments, then I'm not just making any one person I'm coaching or working with better. I'm making entire companies and organizations better. And yeah. that that's a really nice thing to happen. So that's where I'm trying to go with this. Yeah, yeah. And what exactly do you do in these uh, CPO circles? Do you coach them? Um, it's still very much in beta. We're we're starting the community out. Um, you know, you can't. It's like opening up a, a nightclub or a restaurant. You can't just open the doors and say, "Hey, we're here." Um, you know, because if it's empty when the first few people show up, then there's nothing. There's no there there, as as mm-hmm. someone said. Um, so right now, it's still very much in beta. We're just getting together and having meetups and having some really wonderful conversations. Um, later this year, around the time of the conference, actually, is when I'll be launching it properly. Uh, and then we will have an asynchronous community. We'll have a knowledge base. Uh, we'll have some coaching. There's a few other things that are coming as well. The reality is I've committed to the people that I'm working with right now, um, the people in the beta community, 
that I'm going to co-create this with them because I've got strong opinions about what will create value for them, but they're very lightly held. And these these are opinionated people. They will let me know what's <laughs> worth paying for and what's not. So Great, we'll go for yes. that. <laughs> yes, you have very um, raw feedback, which is good. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, and th that's very, very interesting. There are uh, a lot of, not not a lot, but there there is uh, this need in the market for uh, giving guidance to CPOs. And uh, when I had the conversation with Melissa here, she also identified that need in the market for trained CPOs, because this is like such a new position in the market that most people that are doing this uh, never done it before. And it's like maybe... It's like product uh, a few years ago when no one really know what it was, but somehow people ended up there. Uh, and now product is more structured, product management, like the basics, but the higher levels are still uh, a book to, to write. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Very yeah, Melissa's doing Melissa's doing wonderful things in the space. There are other people who do great things in the space. I think it's a, the reality is you know, if we're doing this in a, in a community-based way, which is what I'm trying to do, There's going to be room for lots of different ones with slightly different personalities, slightly different takes on it. Um, exactly. And I'm a huge fan of what Melissa does. Yeah, that's not one size fits it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay, so let's jump for our uh, third big topic, which is uh, I would like to um, discuss with you um, some of your blog posts and the things that you have been publishing the internet recently. Uh, And so the first one, you published this one very, very recently, that is an article about the product strategy that three big companies made public, Twitter, Airbnb, and Tumblr. Uh, so this is already quite a um, controversial <laughs> topic, especially the Airbnb one in the last few weeks. Um, but one of the things that you advocate in this uh, article is that This is a curious example because these three companies are variations of the same example, but in different stages. Uh, and you advocate that the Twitter is in the problem stage, the Airbnb is the turnaround stage, and Tumblr is uh, what good looks like. So can you please expand a bit more uh, on why why do you identify this, uh, these companies being in these uh, layers? Sure. So specifically, they're in those those stages with relation to empowered teams uh, being empowered teams. Uh, I can't speak to to the bottom line of each of the businesses, so that's that's a separate thing. Um, and this is certainly this is the appearance from the outside, from from what I'm seeing, from uh, the, what they post, what they're doing, what they're talking about at conferences. Um, I'm not working it out or consulting with any of those companies, so I don't have incredible insight on the what's going on internally. But from what I can see on the outside is, well, let me actually take a minor step back. Uh, there's a, I know I've heard it from Marty Kagan. I'm sure other people have said it. Talk about you know, a team of missionaries versus a team of mercenaries. And a team of mercenaries are people who do what they're told. And a team of missionaries understand the mission. They really care about it. They put more into it than, than, you, uh, than, than you're just paying them for. Um, and that's really what you want. You want people who are going to go out and evangelize and bring other people along. And that, I mean, a product is a leadership job. That's really what you want out of people. 
And these three companies really show three different stages on the road to becoming uh, empowered teams. So Twitter, you know, ever since Elon Musk bought it and p- different people have said different things about it prior, uh, prior to that as well. The appearance is that they're flailing in terms of product process. You know, things come out, they don't seem fully uh, tested and tried. Every, if you read the gossip, everything goes through or at least at one point went directly through Elon. And it wasn't, a, a, it wasn't clear what he was trying to do. Uh, it seemed like there was everything was very responsive. It was reactive rather than proactive in terms of, uh, and it's, it's very difficult for teams to work that way, to know what the right thing is to plan ahead and build towards something. Um, Airbnb is a really interesting one because a few months ago, Brian Chesky got up at Figma's conference and talked about the fact that they had gotten rid of their product managers, which is not actually what they did. They moved them into a more Apple-like function where they were doing things more on the business side, and they were empowering the design and uh, and de- development leaders to take on some more of what uh, sometimes product managers do. I think that's great, actually, because it means you have a team that really understands things. Uh, he also talked about the fact that they cut a lot of the backlog. They took uh, they centralized their roadmap, and to be honest, that sounds brilliant to me in terms of communicating out to the company what they're trying to do and getting everyone on the same page. And sometimes when you've got things distributed and not making much sense, you really need to centralize to figure that stuff out. And so I think that's where they where they are. What they hadn't done yet or hadn't appeared to do yet is really be able to communicate out to everyone else to delegate some of that decision-making. Um, it all had to go back through the center. And that 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 happens sometimes. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you do it well, that's not a bad way to be working. It just doesn't scale over time. Mm-hmm. And Tumblr published this wonderful post on their on their blog about what they were trying to do. And I think they had about six or seven principles. And each of them uh, of what they were trying to do in terms of for the company and for their users they had a very well articulated uh, um, mission for each of those principles, and they had key results for each of them, uh, or at least they had objectives for each of them about how they were, what their bets were, what they were going to do to realize the, those missions. And I'm guessing, because this was so well articulated, that they had internal key results that they would be measuring that success around. Mm-hmm. And that's the, how you get to empowered teams. You know, you have a squad that fully understands the rationale for what they're doing, the mission that they're being sent on. They're not being told, chip this feature, make this blue. They're being told, make this easier for the user. Sign up more people, do more of this and less of that. Uh, and if that's it, and they they have the freedom to figure out how to accomplish that mission and the lines of communication to go back and forth and talk about, this is what we intend to do. This is why we intend to do it. We'll let you know how it's going. If something changes and we're doing it the wrong thing because the world has changed around us, the financial situation has changed, let us know. Uh, that's that's the definition of empowerment. It's a, an amazing way of working that most people I know don't get to. And so it's yeah. a definitely a nice aspirational thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, the... Um... I'm missing the word, like the utop- utopia that you we want yeah. to get in. Um yeah, like about this NBRB, so what they're trying to do with this product manager role is 
getting back to the basics uh, of uh, what PM really is, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, in some sort of, in time, it felt like uh, PM, be being a product manager, became also sometimes maybe solution dictator. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and that's not really where, where you're trying to get in. Uh, but also then you also have some companies that tend to divide between PM and PO. Um, and uh, so in that case, the PM is more on the business side and the PO is more on the, um, with close to the team. Uh, but also like, what do you think about that? That's a way of working. Um, I'm not a, a big fan of dividing it up. Uh, I don't like the PO role very much. I like, or at least not the position very much. I think Melissa had a really good line a few years ago saying uh, the product owner is a, is a role in the team. It's not a specific job. Um, and the idea, the reality is it's, a, it's, it's something that needs to be done within the team, but it's not, it doesn't matter who does it. And it can even be split amongst multiple people. It's a set of, of competencies that a team must have. Mm -hmm. um, and as long as it's being done, I don't care who does it, but saying it's one person's responsibility and that's separate from the product manager and it's separate from design and it's separate from dev. And mm -hmm. it, 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 it just, it's not something that I think works out very well. Every team is different, you know, sometimes maybe and some personalities will gel the right way that maybe that is the right role sometimes. But as a rule, I, I'm not a fan of a, that structure. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe uh, just now doing some guesswork here, maybe when you feel like you need a PM and a PO, maybe what you really need is a product ops that will try to organize all the frameworks between each teams and empower them to do that job by themselves. And I've worked with good product ops people. I've worked with amazing delivery managers too. And people whose job it is, they're not uh, doing the PMO job. They're not doing the uh, Six Sigma job, but they're, they're not even doing the project manager job. They usually came from one of those, but then they uh, left the dogma behind. And they, they saw their mission is to help teams get things out the door mm -hmm. and to organize them in a way that will enable them to do so. And I know personally when I'm in an operational role, delivery is my, is my weakest suit. I'm better on storytelling, on strategy, on uh, people development and things like that. And I'm not a, a, an amazing person at getting shipping things out the door, which is terrible because if you don't ship things out the door, it's not going to work. So the first thing I try and do at every job is make sure I have someone next to me who is really good at that, who has that bias so that we can have the good tension between us that uh, what I'm, that, that the team doesn't skip on actually delivering things, that we don't just let things slip in uh, search mm -hmm. of making refinement and perfection, that uh, shipping is uh, one of the key things that we do. Yes, yes, yes. Very important. Yeah. Good. Um, also, like I, I was quite surprised when you said that Tumblr is in the part of the example what good looks like, because I mean it's I'm surprised that Tumblr is the the good fella in this story because just we haven't heard a lot about this company in the next in the last years, but uh, this is just a a small note. Yeah, I, I was surprised too, to be honest. But someone on Slack group I'm in mean, posted a link to that blog post, and I was really pleasantly surprised. And my guess is just that they had gone through some hard times 
Um, and they had gone through the similar process, I'm guessing, to that uh, Twitter and, and Airbnb had gone through. And now they're starting to come out the other side. Again, I don't know how this is going to work in terms of uh, business success and if that it's going to ultimately work. But in yeah. terms of an environment where people have the best chance of success, it looks from the outside, based on that blog post, it looks brilliant. And I'm yeah. really hopeful for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm very excited for this idea that uh, uh, this Airbnb idea of uh, empowering PMs more on the business side and uh, uh, designers and uh, techs more also to do the PO job, but not not really that part of the the, the job that needs to be done. Uh, I just think it's uh, exactly very very interesting and uh, it really um, moves the team to towards ownership. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so then on your second article that uh, I thought it was interesting to bring it here to our conversation, uh, it's an article about uh, that you wrote about the uh, Mythbusters in, and you, you use this uh, program to TV TV show to do some comparison with product management, um, and uh, the article is very interesting, but there was one sentence that you did not explore oh, okay. in the article yes yes and the, because you said uh on this article um just is the most dangerous word in tech uh, but yeah. i'm not going to expand this idea here because this is uh, a new this is another blog post so can you expand it <laughs> it is i need here. to i need to write that one thank you for reminding me <laughs> and if it's only one sentence that i didn't explain that in that post i'm, I'm doing great um yeah just just is definitely the most dangerous word in technology. I'm sure there are other ones that you could tell me that that uh, have the same function and, and have the same problem. It assumes too much. You know, it, it, I'm, you've, I'm sure you've been somewhere where a stakeholder came to you and said, can't we just do this? <laughs> um, and it's always something that looks easy. You think it should be easy. And in many cases, it probably actually should be easy. But... Sometimes the way the technology is, is uh, created, the infrastructure is created, a small change is not easy. You know, changing a color, changing a font can be much, much harder than you think sometimes. Um, there's any number of other examples of that, you know, when you're small, saying, can we just change this is often very possible because it is a minor change and it has, you can predict all the effects of that change. But when you get bigger and you get more complicated, changing one little thing somewhere can have really massive effects somewhere else that you don't predict. You're mm -hmm. changing it for one use case for something that makes you or your one customer uh, happier, but you don't know about what, what that does to every other customer, to every other use case. Um, so it can be really, really tricky. And the word just, just it covers so many sins. And so many problems. So anytime someone says, can you just do this? It's the invitation to start exploring, well, what does that actually mean? What are the implications of this? Is this something that is a very simple change? Or is this something that's actually got a much bigger ramifications than they think? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's the PM job to explore that uh, path, that different paths, uh, paths and uh, explain that to the whoever is uh, requiring that uh, just that thing <laughs> right 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the PM's job, but also the, the rest of the team. But the, the more you can do to protect the team from having to uh, go down that rabbit hole every single time someone says, can't we just do this? Yeah, uh, yeah it's it, it it it's a warning sign for me more than anything else. If I hear someone say that, I know I have to ask more questions Yeah, uh, and make sure that it is as easy as I think it might be. Yes. And I found myself saying the same thing to to engineering leads, you know, when they when we do t-shirt sizing and stuff and they say something's complicated, but isn't it just this? And I see their eyes roll and I know, oh, I just did it to them and yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also like uh, relate not another blog post, but kind of related to this topic. You you wrote uh, a part that I thought it was really interesting that uh I'm going to read it now. So one of the other hardest parts of product management is understanding the who wants what, why and when. And the biggest issue that comes up for me, it's when I believe that I already know the answers. So yes. where, uh, how can how does this happen to, to a PM to get to a point where he knows the answers, but he's actually blindsiding himself? I think it's a... The term that I've heard before is going native. Um, and it's, you know, when you first join a company, when you first come to to a, a new role, you've got fresh eyes on everything. You're asking tons of questions and you've got that wonderful freedom for the first couple of months of saying, I'm going to ask lots of stupid questions. And I'm going to feel great about it because everyone's going to explain things to me. But after a while, you stop asking those questions and you stop seeing it with fresh eyes. Um, going back to, to my journalism days, this is why I love editors so much. Um, you know, because if I write something, I want someone else to see it because I can't see it through fresh eyes after a while. I'm completely blind to some of it. It's the same thing with everything else. Um, this is a, you know, if we go back to to basic product principles, this is why personas and customer types come in. This is why we try and put ourselves through the viewpoint of other people. This is why it's so important to do continuous discovery. To mm -hmm. be talking to people all the time because you can't see some of this anymore, and you need to uh, empathize and see it through other people's eyes. And if you have the ability to do that yourself, that's great. But most of us need the assistance from from other people to do it. Mm -hmm. So bringing in new people to your team, doing research with new customers, with new customers and new people, it's it's completely invaluable. Yeah. Yes, it's that. Uh, so it's kind of uh, fake your fresh eyes continuously with this discovery and talk with different customers. Yeah, that's super, super important. Well, uh, Randy, we are getting to the end of our conversation. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And um, so I, I have one final question to you. That is, why should, why should people join us uh, in October for the conference? Oh my God, that's a terrible question. Of course, oh. it's so obvious. <laughs> no, we'll do it through freshers. Well, having been to the conference before, I can just say it's a really well-run conference. Lots of really wonderful people. And it's an amazing city. I mean, just great food, great weather, great people. So all that. But the lineup is fantastic. Uh, I know some of the people running workshops and some of the people who are talking. And there's going to be a lot of great stuff. Um, I know my talk's going to be really good because I saw a couple of really great talks recently that really inspired me. I was uh, coming home from another conference and I, I basically wrote the the talk on the plane feeling very inspired by other people. And that's always a good place to be in when you know nice. what things are. 
And yeah, I'm going to be talking about uh, some of the challenges of dealing with, with AI and large language models and uh, based on some of the principles that we talked about earlier based on the book. But I can't wait to see what Melissa and Tammy and Radhika and, and all these other amazing people have to say. Great. I'm so excited now for a talk. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Randy. And besides, it's the best <laughs> place in the world for pastel de nada. What could be bad about that? <laughs> True. Okay, Randy, thank you so much. This was great. Obrigado. Thank you. <laughs> well.